0: This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook undoubtedly has some of the top designers in the world working under one roof. But what does it take to actually be a designer at Facebook? I asked product designer Matthew Suber to find out.
1: In short, I'd say it's uh, product thinking. Um, Having some experience in what commonly may be described as UX or UI design, uh, self-awareness. Um, good to superb communication skills and an insatiable desire to request and document feedback on your work uh, your approach and uh, your growth trajectory as a
0: professional learn more at facebook.com forward slash design are you looking for a job do you know someone who's looking for a job then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fog Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. Segment is looking for a brand designer in San Francisco. Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts is looking for a senior designer. And for freelancers, Cactus Group as well as Social Experiments DC are both looking for website designers. Check the job board for more info. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path Job Board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers,
1: web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about
0: their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you one more time about our annual audience survey. Now, you can go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take it. It should take you about five to 10 minutes. And we do this audience survey every year so we can learn more about you. Of course, our audience grows every year. So we want to know more about you. We want to know more about the things that you want. We want to know more about the things that you don't want. And the survey is really the best way to do that. And this year, because it's our fifth anniversary, we're going to be giving away a $500 amazon.com gift card to one lucky person that takes the survey. So if you want that to be you, if you're listening, you want $500 for taking a survey, go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Now it does close on April the 30th, so you've only got about a week to get it done. Again, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether you're into coding, design, music, or art, Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch or remix any of the available projects that you see on the homepage or anywhere else and make them your own. And if you get stuck on something, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at designgoogle forward slash newsletter. Again, that's designgoogle forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it it makes sense if you think about it. You know, you want to hear more from the people and businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking to Alex Binder, a UX designer at OnShift in Cleveland, Ohio. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Alex Binder, and I'm a UX designer from the Cleveland area. I currently work at a software company called OnShift.
0: What is it like in the Cleveland area for design? Can you tell me about the design community there?
1: Yeah, I would say the majority of the design community is really focused around branding and like print design, stuff like that. And if they are working on interactive stuff, usually it's like marketing sites. So it's kind of different from what I do, since I kind of I have one of like the few positions that work on product. If that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Does that make it difficult in terms of like networking or letting people know about what you're doing?
1: I think it's difficult when it comes to like finding. Events that resonate with me a little bit more because I feel like there are a lot of events that kind of talk more about branding and print design and stuff like that. And even and these I'm talking more specifically about AIGA, but even with the UX organization that I, that I frequent a little bit more often called UXBA, they tend to focus a lot on like marketing sites and specific kinds of conversions versus like, you know, building a holistic product for a person to use day in and day out. So just across the board in this area, they're just, I guess these organizations don't just don't realize that they're kind of like these products, these software product companies popping up all over the place. Yeah. And I think they'll kind of catch up pretty soon.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned AIGA. We had Timothy Bardlevins back on the show last year. He does UX for Microsoft. And I remember one of the things that we spoke about was how AIGA, I guess at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but how the organization wasn't really looking at UX as design or they didn't consider it design. I think the way that Timothy had put it, it was because there was a lack of a kind of visual product or visual byproduct at the end of it. So they didn't really see it as design. What do you think about that, about people that don't necessarily consider UX as design what would you tell them
1: i would say first it kind of depends on what your definition of design is right because i don't necessarily know like what he said mm-hmm. per se right like um i kind of feel like some people kind of think that design is just about visual communication but the program that i went through at cleveland state university kind of tried to fu- like get us to Focusing on solving a problem and that problem could have a visual byproduct at the end of it or it could not because there are things like service design people design everything i think any time where you're trying where you're solving a problem is designed to me so that's kind of my answer to that if that makes any sense
0: now that makes a lot of sense because designers i know i hear this a lot designers are often at least looked at or described as problem solvers And I think it makes sense that that problem that they're solved or the solution, I should say, to that problem is not necessarily going to be something that is a a graphic visual kind of representation. Definitely. Tell me more about your time at Cleveland State University. Sounds like that program really uh, served you well as a UX designer.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. Like when I first got out of school in 2008, I was not planning on going to Cleveland State at all. I had gone to SVA's pre-college program, and back in 2006, when I was still in high school, and I made a whole bunch of friends. But kind of after the recession hit in 2008, just the money really wasn't right. But Cleveland State offered like a really affordable option for me and my family. Mm-hmm. So when I started the program, I kind of came into the the Bachelor's of Fine Arts, like as a I guess as a generalist like I was taking illustration classes and I wasn't necessarily sure I guess about what I wanted to well I had an idea that I wanted to go into design but I wasn't really aware that the program existed until I started to kind of find a couple of design programs here and there right and I remember Jen Vasaki O'Grady coming up and telling me like you're undeclared as a design major you've been taking all of these design classes you need to start taking design courses but anyway i di- i digress <laughs> just just wanted to articulate that it kind of i kind of almost fell into the into the program a little bit by happenstance but yeah. but because i kind of came into the program that way i was a little i guess disheartened and I wasn't really focusing like on the coursework as much as I should probably because I kind of thought that I was better than I was until I met this one guy. His name's Thomas Day who kind of got me my first design job on campus at Cleveland State Recreation Center. And like, he was my first, I guess, exposure to like, to the way, to the products of, Cleveland State's upper division design program. Well, he was an upperclassman at the time. I was a lower classman. And he really kind of taught me about how design strategy is important and things like that. And I think a big reason why CSU's design program is really successful is because there are all these small peripheral opportunities at this large university to kind of get real world experience actually having like a real design job. Because my design job, like I said before, was on campus. So I guess. Kind of going through the program, when I when I started taking like the actual design courses, like the, undergr- the undergrad design courses, I would kind of work really late in the studio and I would get to kind of sit in on the upper division courses, right? And during those classes, I got to kind of see the capstone, like some of the capstone course early where they would have previous alumni come in and kind of talk about what they wanted to do. And I kind of remembered there was one designer in particular that was working out of Chicago at the time at a software company. And that was the very first time I knew that designers could work at software companies. And he was kind of talking about all the things that he did and how a lot of his artifacts weren't necessarily visual, right? Like he was going out doing research, working on wireframes sometimes, Depending on the situation, he might just straight pass the wireframes to a developer and work. So that was kind of like my first experience or my first exposure to seeing a designer kind of work on artifacts that weren't necessarily visual. And I think another large proponent to the reason why I think about doing design work the way that I do is because of the books that Jen wrote about design research in general. Like Those books were really good primers. While I was taking the upper division courses into like, you know, different ways that designers frame problems to solve them correctly. So, yeah, I think all of that in these different and all of that in these different like smaller, I guess, events throughout my career kind of started to push me in this direction that that some people might consider outside of design. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So.
0: So, when you approach a new project, and I I know you're working at OnShift, and as much as you can, I guess, describe in general what your process is, when you're approaching a new project, kind of walk us through what that looks like for you.
1: So, I would say that that process kind of is almost like a cyclical three step process that kind of feeds into itself after you complete it each time. The very first one is the very first phase of that. This process is like a discovery phase then a prototyping phase, and then some kind of validation phase. So th- the best way to describe the discovery phase is kind of like, you know, because I work on business software, and I think this applies to anybody that works on any product that fits into someone's life. The big questions that I try to answer with different research techniques are trying to define pretty much what the process is to make someone's life easier. Like, I guess, like, what's the process for the person that building the thing for in the first place. And of course, who's doing the process, kind of like how they feel about the current process as well as like where and when they're doing the thing. And was, I think, and then the last part is kind of like figuring out how, I guess like the thing that I'm designing could potentially fit into their current process. So like all of those things are effectively trying to form a hypothesis to eventually feed into this prototype that I'm good, that I try to design. Over a quick period of time, the very first time I'm, I like, I might take a stab at a product or a feature. This prototype might not be very high fidelity. So it might not be pixel perfect mockups, but something that I can get in front of someone to ultimately validate whether or not I'm going in the right direction. And after that validation phase where I might, what that validation phase looks like is kind of like, I might put some, the whole idea around that is trying to put someone in the right context or in the context that I discovered during the discovery phase, right? In that context and asking them to complete tasks in that context. So that might be kind of like almost telling someone a story about to jog their memory about a process that they might do on a regular basis and then asking them to complete tasks within that story and just kind of like gauging and seeing how well my prototype is helping facilitate that process. Does that make sense?
0: No, that makes sense. It actually sounds a lot like the scientific method. And I'm glad that you said that it's a cyclical process because I know certainly when you talk to designers or when you talk to, I wouldn't say designers, when you talk to stakeholders or clients about doing UX work, sometimes I think for them, it can seem like an unnecessary process. They may just want you to jump right into The design portion and just like start making something and they want to know well why are you asking all these questions and why do we keep sort of going back over trying to get these questions together before we create something and like I said it's similar to the the scientific method because you're you know the discovery process is very much like asking a question doing your research you know constructing the hypothesis when you're prototyping you're sort of building out an experiment and then you're testing it In a cyclical way to see if it's working and then any sort of data or information that you get back kind of feeds back into that hypothesis and, you know, creating that prototype and making sure that it's, you know, that it's what the client or what the stakeholders want before you actually start building it. So in a way, it really just uh, helps inform the design process so you're not having to recreate the wheel.
1: Yeah. And I think the best way to kind of keep what you said from happening is to kind of make sure, right, like that your stakeholders are involved throughout each step in the process. Like I have like during that discovery phase and this is the honestly the reason why I really wanted to get into UX in the first place is because before some of my other jobs, I kind of felt like, you know, I wasn't necessarily I felt like I had less ownership over the the final deliverable like I was kind of being told or kind of being brought in at the end of the process to provide a service mm-hmm. versus kind of honing these other skills that kind of get me to work in earlier in the pipeline like when people are starting to think about process like projects and, and products and things like that like how can I add value at each step in the process to make this this whole process feel more like a partnership than someone just kind of mandating that I do a thing at the end, right?
0: Yeah, it's very much like the difference between being a handyman and being an architect. You know,
1: Def- yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell people who are interested into getting into UX? Like, what do they need to know going into this field?
1: I think there are three things that people need to know pretty much that they're like, as they kind of start to make this transition into the UX field. And I think it's kind of not very obvious for some people or just in general, until you get into the, into the space that this is what it's about. I think that UX is less about creating solutions to problems Mm -hmm. as much as it's about understanding one, of course, the needs of, your users, which is more of the obvious one. The second one is understanding the needs of your business. And then the third is understanding the constraints of the people that you work with. Right. The first one, like I said, like we kind of just covered it, you know, making sure that you have the right target audience or the right person and the right process that you're trying to help facilitate with the thing that you're building. But understanding the needs of the business, that means that you need to be able to speak the language of the business, understand what is valuable to your stakeholders. So then you can, like, you can present whatever the solution is at the end of the day in their language so they understand how the thing that you're providing is adding value, right? And the last thing is, like I said before, understanding constraints. So of the people that you work with, this usually relates to. And your interdisciplinary team, right? Because all of these different people have different goals, effectively, right? That's, yeah, that's the yeah, yeah, exactly. Like different goals. So, for example, your developer might care about performance and making sure the efficacy of their code is correct, and your product owner cares about the deadline because they're being held accountable by the company stockholders and their boss, right? Mm-hmm. So understanding kind of like what motivates these people and kind of getting them to kind of like corralling these people under like a unified goal of like, you know, trying reminding everyone that we're making something for someone at the end of the day. And if that doesn't necessarily provide that, va- and if what we're building doesn't necessarily provide value to them, then it doesn't, you know, really matter, you almost are kind of like a cheerleader. And the other half of that is understanding kind of like what their constraints are. So then the solutions that you provide can actually work within those constraints. Because I could tell you right now, if you design something or propose a solution that isn't feasible because of time or isn't feasible because of the technology that you're using, it doesn't matter because yeah. you, you're not going to be able to implement the thing at the end of the day.
0: I feel like within the past, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, there's been a really marked increase in the number of UX designers that we've seen in the design industry, of course, there are UX design programs, there are schools slash boot camps like General Assembly, etc., that have specific UX tracks. Why do you think we've started to see so many UX designers over the past 10 years?
1: I think, well, first, it has to do with kind of like a shift in technology over a large over a short period of time. I think UX has kind of always been relevant It's just been called different things over time. I mean, UX design has been around since before the Internet existed. It just wasn't called UX design. Mm -hmm. For example, the first quote unquote UX designers were psychologists that worked on fighter planes in World War One or World War 2 I'm not a history buff. Whenever (laughs) airplanes were introduced into the theater of war. And this is because at one time when planes were first introduced, pilots kept crashing them like, before they would really get too far off the runway. Um, And pretty much what wound up happening was these generals kind of called these two psychologists and to observe exactly what was happening and why it was happening. So they ran tests on current plane or on the, like, current model planes throughout, like, this, like, in this era to kind of figure out what was happening. And more or less what they found out was, like, people were crashing planes because they were getting trained up on one specific kind of plane when they were learning how to fly. But because all of these different planes had different, like had different interfaces inside of them that were that to the common eye seemed like the exact same thing, but to a pilot that was, you know, in a stressful situation, couldn't necessarily tell the difference between one or two critical controls that would cause the plane to crash. Mm -hmm. So they proposed a solution that involved creating like a set of standards, six specifically, that then actually this thing is called the sacred six that are used in planes even today. So then when a pilot can come, when a pilot walks into a different model of plane, they already know like what the six most important things are in the interface. Right. So like I said, like this process of observing, designing, and proposing a solution and validating that solution has existed since then, at least. And those processes have been used all the way up until now. I think we're seeing like like a surge in UX design because just five to 10 years ago, the internet wasn't what it is today, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different standards and governance rules that need to be enforced in order to make sure that everybody is creating the right thing for people to understand, if that makes any sense.
0: Well, that makes sense. I know that there is so much talk and analysis around the role of the UX designer because basically from what you've just said, it sounds like it's a very malleable role within the design industry. At least now it is because with the advent of technology, UX can mean so many different things. I'm thinking of articles that I've seen where people will say that no one should be a UX designer or... UX design is, is over. Like the golden age of UX is over. UX is <laughs> oversaturated. I, I remember specifically this one, uh, designer. He's a German designer who lives in New York. His name is Tobias van Schneider. And he yeah. had wrote this piece very recently about like design titles. And there was a piece, there was a part in there about UX designers where he calls them, uh, people who can't design anything visually, but have all the confidence to tell others how to do it right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I heard about that. Yeah, I mean I think it just depends on what context you're looking at it from. Like if you under if you have a strong understanding of like where UX design came from, mm-hmm. then your perspective obviously is going to be different. But if you think that, you know, UX design was created when the internet was created or a little bit after that, then yeah, you're going to have a very narrow view of what the principles apply to. So of course I could, I could see how someone would think that the, the field is oversaturated and it's full of a bunch of people that may not necessarily know what they're doing. But I also kind of feel like that has, I mean, I think that that's a larger problem, right? Like I'm talking about the entire design industry. Mm Mm-hmm how we present ourselves and how we communicate to stakeholders and people that pay us money to do our jobs. Like if we can't even communicate with each other about exactly what we want to do or what we, what we plan, like what our roles are and how we actually function in a company, how can we expect like, you know, a stakeholder to, to find what we do valuable? That's all no, I have to that's say.
0: No, that's, that's the truth right there. I mean, it's a very similar, I think sort of analysis as to what people thought of, like web designers in the like mid two thousands or so, people were saying that, you know, web design was changing. Certainly the number of roles have increased because I mean back back in my day, <laughs> there were you were a web designer, you were a graphic designer, or you were a webmaster. And like those kind of were the three big roles. And then of course as the industry has changed, the type of designer you can be within even just web and graphic design is splintered. So much that whatever title it is can mean, honestly, it can mean different things based on what you do, where you work, what part of the country you're in is it's a very sort of a, a ever changing thing. And I see that with UX as well.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like UX designs kind of like a flavor of the month kind of situation or, you know, depending on where you work. Right that role could mean something different. It's just like digital product design, right? Like mm-hmm. product designer roles. Yeah. That you can go from someone expecting you to be a front-end web developer most of the time versus just someone that designs illustrations at another company or someone that works specifically on interaction design. Like it, it, it varies, right? Oh, yeah. And I think – UX design is almost just like a catch-all term for all of that stuff, just because smaller to mid-sized companies can't necessarily, can't really, I guess, pay for specialists. So they want people that are kind of like these generalist designers, right?
0: Where do you see UX going into the future?
1: I see it going wherever there is new technology or new Processes that are being created, like any place where there is a human that interacts with a product or process, I feel like that's where it is and it should go, if that makes any sense.
0: No, I see that. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely can see the need for UX as it relates to, to like voice assistants, like a Alexa or, or Google Assistant or something like that. I still feel like the UX around that needs to be improved. I mean, as, as advanced and robust as it is now, I think. There's still issues. Like, as we're recording this right now, there's the issue about Alexa just kind of randomly laughing and people getting freaked out by that, and Amazon saying, We don't know why that's happening. (laughs) I hope you should find out why that's happening. You know, like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Furbies (laughs) from back in the day, right? Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How the Furbies would. Yeah, I remember that. The Furbies would like talk to each other, or it would just sort of start randomly talking? Yeah. (laughs) Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we've talked a lot about UX, and and you've certainly given, I think, a lot of information about that. But I'm curious to kind of know more about you as a person. What is it that keeps you kind of motivated and inspired as you do all this work?
1: I think... The thing that keeps me motivated, inspired, and inspired is just the idea that I get to come to work and learn about someone else's job, or I get to learn about new technology, and I get paid for that. Like you can't put a price on that. That's crazy. Like I think the only other job that you can do that with is like edu- is if you were working as like a professor somewhere. So mm-hmm. any play, any time where I get to learn a new process, I get to learn a new thing, or I get to figure out something that I haven't learned before is kind of what keeps me motivated. I would say
0: earlier, you mentioned Thomas day, you mentioned Jen Visaki O'Grady, who are some of the other people out there that have inspired you?
1: I think any person that takes, I guess like that has process or takes like a cerebral approach to creating a thing. For example, there's this guy, his name's Mills Baker. He's like the design manager at Quora right now. He used to work at Twitter, I think. I'm not sure if he was like a product designer or if he was a design manager there too, but he has a lot of really interesting writing about what it was like to kind of shape the help shape the rules of Twitter and, and information about knowledge distribution and things like that with his job at Quora. The way he approaches helping build those systems are, I guess really inspiring to me because it seems really complicated Mm -hmm. and I feel like I would kill to be able to try and solve problems like that, or at least to be in the room and help solve them, you know?
0: Yeah. What advice has really stuck with you over the years?
1: I would say the one thing that sticks with me the most and has impacted probably all of my work is kind of what, Jen instilled in us at CSU, right? Like that design isn't necessarily just about communication, but it's about like how your product or communication solves a problem for someone or anyone. I try to make sure that whatever I work on, like I think about what problems I'm solving and how to frame them the right way.
0: What would you like to see more of from the UX community? I know based on what you've told me so far, You certainly have a lot of (laughs) really good thoughts around this, but what would you like to see more from the UX community?
1: I don't know if I could answer that question. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's just I can't really think of anything. Like, Because I kind of feel like that when I think of the UX community, it's kind of like this really, really big bucket of disciplines, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of think of UX as, I don't know, kind of how that one article that you described that all, that, that maybe everyone shouldn't be, like, there shouldn't be necessarily UX designers, right? Like, maybe you should have people ultimately that, I guess, in my mind, I kind of want, I want there to be enough transparency in the role, I guess, so that everybody knows. That you can have more defined, I guess, more transparency into what gets done during in different processes and stuff like that. So I guess a company can hire like what they need versus just kind of throwing out like the word UX designer. And then it's like you got to investigate and figure out exactly what's going on.
0: Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: one of those things where it's like because to me, the way I think about UX is it's just like this big catch all term. For a bunch of different disciplines, and you need, and companies don't necessarily know what they need in a lot, in some cases. So they might just throw out the term UX designer, and then it's up to the person that's, you know, good at those things to figure out exactly what the company needs, right? Because it varies from place to place because you're talking about just how different design Because effectively all UX is, is how psychology applies to different design disciplines, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it could be a bunch of different things, I guess. So in my mind, I kind of hope that someday we can get to a point where people stop using the term UX and start thinking about what kinds of designers and what kinds of researchers they need to solve their problems. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about, reducing transparency between all design disciplines and parts of the business. Like I want someone to think that a UX designer or a specific kind of designer is just as important as like an accountant and be able to say, I want this specific kind of designer, right? Or this specific kind of researcher, right? Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have a dream project, I think, as much as... I think I have like a dream role where I could work on service design, maybe a little bit of hardware design and software design. Like I think that like a a place or a position where I could do all of those things would be really interesting because I feel like, I don't know, maybe a place where I could do all of those things and help prescribe what the right thing is. Because I feel like up until recently, I've worked in a place where I've only been able to work on software problems that are like really well scoped, Mm -hmm. I would like to be able to kind of like work somewhere where I can say, maybe the problem that you're, that you're trying to solve isn't necessarily going to be solved with software. Maybe we can solve it in this other process oriented way. Mm -hmm. Because I kind of feel like sometimes people kind of walk around With when they walk around with a hammer, everything kind of looks like a nail, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) I feel like I feel like companies like uh, definitely Facebook or Google would maybe fall in line with that where you're hopefully solving those kinds of problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it seems like there's opportunity where I'm currently working right now to do that kind of thing, which is kind of interesting because they're really hyper focused on posts on like the post-acute care side of, of like healthcare mm-hmm. that we can really do deep dives on like the interpersonal relationships between like a manager and or a like a nursing supervisor and like a certified nurse assistant or something like that, right? Like we can figure out kind of like how these two people work together and maybe propose solutions that might not always be software. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that someone you should probably interview is my buddy, Tony Turner. He worked at Philips for a few years on CT scanners related to and he's a UX designer. Well, he was considered a human factors engineer. But like I said, you know, depends on where you work and what the name of the position is. It's effectively the same kind of job Mm -hmm. just with other. He had other like different kinds of constraints, like HIPAA constraints and stuff like that. Yeah. He's a really good person that you should talk to about healthcare and design
0: okay yeah if you could introduce me to him that'd be great i'd love that for sure i did human factors engineering back when i interned with nasa and that was a long time ago that was (laughs) 2000 that was 2001 i interned at um marshall space flight center in alabama in huntsville doing human factors engineering with haptic interfaces and stuff like that that was pretty cool actually
1: would you mind kind of telling me a little bit about that? I know you're interviewing me, but that sounds really interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, I'll tell you. So, I mean, I studied math in college, and so I really had no clear, I'm not going to lie, I had no clear goal as to what I was going to get out of college, because I came in in the scholarship program with NASA, and the thing was, we would intern at these NASA facilities, and then when we graduate, we would have a, like, guaranteed job with NASA. So for me, it was just like, I just got to get through school. Right. And yeah. so first internship I did was at Ames Research Center out in California doing robotics engineering. That was pretty cool. And then the second internship was at Marshall Space Flight Center doing human factors engineering work with haptic interfaces. So this is before we really start seeing touchscreens being used in like smartphones and point of sale devices and stuff like that. It was a lot of UX. So, I mean, honestly, stuff that you would call UX now, a lot of testing and work around interactions, around forming conversation paths, lots of flow charts. I remember there being lots of flow charts and stuff <laughs> with trying to figure out like, what are the best ways to guide people through the interface? We didn't really do a lot on the technical side in terms of like the, you know, like the membrane devices or the, the accentuation, not accentuation, attenuation points of typing on devices or stuff like that but it was more about the the goal and the process behind what it was that you were doing. That was also where I got introduced to 3D printing before it became like a, a general hobbyist thing right now. What NASA would do is they have these big 3D printers and I thought it was like the coolest thing ever when I first saw it I was like you can print a 3D object. <laughs> like are you say like I remember going back to school and telling people they were like man that'll never happen. I mean <laughs> now of course it does happen like you can get like one of those little 3D doodler pens at like Target or something but <laughs> they would 3D print the foam core that would go on the nose cone of the space shuttle and so it was made of this like material they call marcor and we would get to see the printer and we would see the algorithm that would go into it as to how it printed out. It was all, you know, AutoCAD and all that stuff, but showing how it printed it all out. And then you see the size of the, the nose cone and it's, done. it was, it was a lot of stuff. It was really fun. I, Man, I think back so... now about stuff that I saw at NASA in like the early 2000s that now is like common, you know, like just common stuff. And those are, are two of the things I remember the most.
1: Man. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I wish you could see the look on my face right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the only the only thing about that program, I mean, this is, I mean, it's kind of a a downer to attach to it. But nine eleven happened, and then the the funding for my program shifted to Homeland Security, so that mm-hmm. that whole guaranteed job after graduation was whew, gone out the window. So I was like, man, I don't know what I'm gonna do now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like i have no idea what i'm gonna do when I graduate I was like selling tickets at the symphony I did that for a little bit and then got fired like yeah <laughs> I, I have a That's very unconventional story of getting into design so yeah <laughs> <laughs> what do you uh want to accomplish this year i know you are pretty new at on shift but are there other things you want to want to do this year
1: I think I'm really hoping that I can kind of ship this password manager that i've been working on with my buddy his name's nathaniel we've been like he we used to work at highland together for a while i think we started like right around the same time and and this was like i think like right around the equifax hack and all that crazy stuff that was going on but like we kind of got the idea that man why don't we just try and work on like a password manager. That's open source and free for all of our friends and family and stuff to kind of like make sure all of their credentials and stuff are safe. We kind of just wanted to spin up some kind of project for us because we liked working with each other so much at work that, you know, it kind of just seemed like the right thing. And he had like a really strong interest in info and in like in infosec and stuff like that. So he got to teach me a bunch of stuff about how encryption works and stuff like and things like that. And well, not how it works, but he, he could explain it to me in layman's terms. And also, and I could kind of explain to him kind of how like, you know, UX plays a role in security as well, too, right? Like if someone doesn't necessarily understand how how this security mechanism is going to benefit them, or if it's outside of like, you know, the what, like what they expect, people will circumvent security measures like, you know, like instead of having, memorizing a really complicated password, they might just put it on a, like a sticky note on a, like on a monitor somewhere, right? Like So kind of understanding what the threshold is of someone's tolerance for those complicated things is important to understand when you're making these systems, right? So yeah, but what wound up happening was towards, I think, midway through last year, he wound up getting, or maybe late last year, or yeah, late last year, he wound up getting a job at Dropbox. So he kind of got uprooted and moved to San Francisco and stuff like that. So he kind of, Took a break and now he's kind of we're kind of getting back into things. So Mm. I'm really hoping we can ship that before the end of the year. I can maybe provide some links for it later if we actually get something like get something together.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you do, let me know. I really like that part about how UX kind of plays a role in security. Certainly, as we've seen so many data breaches and data hacks and all that sort of stuff, it's important. You know, I I think about. Oh God. Remember last year, the whole thing of, was that last year. Was that earlier this year? The thing that happened with Hawaii and the, the, the missile warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that, the, was, that, that was a huge UX disaster that caused yep. that, especially once they <laughs> dove into like the, the interface and everything. It was like, I, wow, that was, that was a mess.
1: Yeah. That reminds me of like another story related, and this is actually related to healthcare. Like, have you ever read the book Digital Doctor?
0: Mm-mm. Who's, who's so, Digital Doctor by?
1: I forget the name of the author, but I could tell you there's – and I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this justice, but there was an excerpt in the book about how there was like a chapter taken out of the book, and it was like floating around the internet for a while, and it was about how like this really large healthcare software provider – and I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to like – put their business out there, but they they make software for floor nurses to fill out prescriptions in an ER for like, you know, and this system is hooked up to all different parts of the hospital. So like the in-house, like the in-house pharmacy mm-hmm. and all of these different steps in between filling the, pre- like doing this, like this, this digital prescription and getting the prescription at the pharmacy well pretty much this child came in Well, child he's I think he's like 16 years old came in for some problem and they wound up like prescribing him medication for a, like a re like a existing issue and I think it was like neurological medication so mm-hmm. it was like a big deal and just to give you context so this person goes over to the system and the system is so complicated that these people have to wear like vests when they're interacting with the system because that pretty much signified don't bother them because they're in the middle of an important process and this thing is so complicated that if they mess up it can ruin someone's life right mm-hmm. so this clinician went and filled out the system like filled out the information in the system and there was one dropdown i guess that truncated the unit of measurement for the pill
0: uh-huh.
1: or the amount and she typed in i think it was the dosage in some metric unit of measurement that was not being exposed in the um in the bar because i guess like in that in that drop down because things got flipped around but because The default got flipped around and things weren't and things were truncated and all that stuff happened. So what wound up happening was she put this prescription in wrong and it missed and it made it through every single checkpoint that where human intervention occurs because everybody just assumed because they do like 50 or 60 of these a day. Right. Like that. Oh, it's probably right because. Everybody else checked it, right? So that it moves through this entire process and gets all the way to the pharmacy. The kid picks up the medicine and takes the medicine for a week and he's back in the hospital because of some major problem. Wow. And when Yeah. And pretty much they eventually figured out what was wrong. And I think the kid wound up suing the hospital for malpractice and HIPAA got involved, and then they wound up having to audit all the software that was related in that. Like to that to to that system and any other peripheral system that wasn't necessarily involved just to make sure that like human factors assessments were done. And and I don't necessarily know if that company failed to like present like the risk assessment paperwork. But pretty much if that kind of thing does happen, it can like shut your facility down. Yeah. You know for a period of time until you rectify the situation and can produce the receipts that say you, you did r- proper human factors, risk assessments and stuff like that. So crazy story. Yeah. UX is important. UX is important.
0: <laughs> 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 where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing?
1: I'd like to work anywhere where I can be at every step of the process from idea inception, like idea generation to delivery, like anywhere where I can, Kind of like help own like us, like a product or process, and help design like a solution from point, like from start to finish. It could be anywhere, I feel like. It doesn't necessarily have to be visual design heavy, but like anywhere where I'm doing that.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, Alex, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: You can find me at alex-binder.com. And also at Twitter, or on my Twitter, at Binder Alex.
0: Sounds good. Well, Alex Binder, I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. I think you really had a lot to share and and really clarify about UX, the role of UX, the importance of UX. I think it certainly opened my eyes. I hope it has done the same for the audience, for them to know that UX is something that Certainly as design and technology become more and more integrated, UX kind of serves to be the, I don't want to say like the connective tissue, but I feel like that's the best way to put it. Like it's the best way to describe how you interact between technology and design and users and stakeholders and clients. It's sort of the thing that binds us all together in a way, because we're all about making sure that we're providing, of course, the best experience for our users, ha ha ha. But UX designers also help out in so many other different ways. And I think that you've really done a good job of explaining that. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Alex Binder and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Alex and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? You know, everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Does that sound interesting? If so, then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at Facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games, to art, to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Mailchimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. Mailchimp gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com today and sign up for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode a little early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.